uh, I'd like to read about a dozen verses out of 2 Chronicles 36. Okay, 2 Chronicles 36. 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles. Okay, you start flipping through your Old Testament and you see any of those, you kind of know where you're at. The, the verses will be up on the screen as well. You can, you can follow along. So I'd like to just read those dozen verses before I actually introduce the message this afternoon. 2 Chronicles chapter 36, beginning in verse 11. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear by God. He stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord, the God of Israel. All the officers of the priest and the people, likewise, were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations. And they polluted the house of the Lord that he had made holy in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. Therefore, he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on the young man or the virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand and all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. And they burned the house of God broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths all the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord might, by the mouth of Jeremiah, might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in, Jude in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him 
go up. That last chapter of Second Chronicles is the preface and the introduction to the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. We are going to take the next many weeks, several months, in a study through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. I've entitled the series, Church Building, God's Project for the Future. Church building. I don't mean church building, brick and mortar, a building, a noun. I mean church building, a verb, the activity of God, the project of God. He is building his church. This is God's project, what he's doing. The books, Ezra and Nehemiah, together, they are about God regathering his people out of exile. An exile that they deserved based on what we just read together. They had so forsaken God, so rejected God, so departed from God. To the point God said, there's, there's no remedy. I have been appealing out of my compassion for you. Sending messenger after messenger whom you keep mocking and rejecting. And there was no remedy and they were sent off into Babylon, into exile. Ezra and Nehemiah is about the end of that exile and God regathering, drawing his people back to himself, back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the walls of the city and to become yet again the people of God in their own land, worshiping their God, the Lord who set them free. This is an account of God's restoration plan for his people, drawing them back to himself after their hearts had grown cold, after they had withdrawn from him, their indifference and their defiance towards God cost them everything, but now they're about to be restored, brought back. This is more than just a story about rebuilding a city, rebuilding a temple. It's an account of restoration. It's an account of reformation. It's an account of revival. It's God restoring the hearts of his people to himself. It's the same thing, folks, that you and I need. The thing that I long for and pray for, and I hope it's in your heart as well. This is what we need. We need God's Spirit to revive us, to restore us, to rebuild us, to reform us. Here's my prayer list for this series. A renewed sense of belonging to the people of God. A willingness to prioritize God's building project. A renewed hunger for his word, to hear it, learn it, study it, apply it. A revived sense of Christ-centered worship, that the sacrifice of Christ would be the entire source of our worship. All our worship would be oriented around who Christ is and what he's done for us. That our lives would be ever 
reforming to embrace what God has called us to. Resolve to say no. With faith and joy, saying no to things that distract and draw our hearts away from the Lord. And a renewed vigor to build, to invest, to pour our energies into God's project with plenty of resolve to withstand opposition no matter how strong. That's my prayer list. Is that asking too much? Is that asking too much of God? It's a long list. It's a big ask. And yet our study is going to show us God doing these very things with a people that had drawn themselves so far away from God, beyond repair, beyond remedy, and yet, and yet, we're going to see God's Spirit at work in those people, restoring them, renewing them, reforming them, and reviving them. So my goal this afternoon is simply to introduce, to prepare how we can make the most of this study that will start. I'm not even going to really open up the book of Ezra. Tim, Tim will open it up for us next week. This afternoon is just how can I encourage us as a church to make the most of a study through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah? Four ways to make the most of this study. The first point is to start by seeing the similarities with the book of Acts. These books of Ezra and Nehemiah, now they are, in a sense, originally one book. We have them in our English Bible as two separate books. In the original Hebrew, they're combined as one. In the, in the Greek Septuagint, uh, the, the first Greek translation, one book. So we're going to just meld them together, take them together, run them straight through from Ezra 1 through the end of Nehemiah. Those two books combined have a lot of similarities with the book of Acts. And I want to point this out because I think it will help get us in to the story. As we are in the story of the book of Acts. Both books begin with a fulfillment of a prophecy. And at the end of 2 Chronicles chapter 36, I read it. Ezra 1 starts off with basically a repeat of those last few verses. Where the king of Persia, Cyrus says, the Lord told me that I need to go and send people and money to go and rebuild the temple to this God by the mouth of Jeremiah to fulfill the words of Jeremiah. The storyline opens with a fulfillment of a prophecy. In Jeremiah 29, and we just studied through the book of Jeremiah not that long ago, in chapter 29 of Jeremiah, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. You remember those verses. Now think, just think about what's happening here. Those are the words that God is speaking to a people that have flat out rejected Every attempt God has made to appeal to them to be his people. After a long history of rescuing them out of slavery, establishing them as a nation, they have rejected God. And here is the Lord saying to them, oh, I have plans for you, plans for good, plans to bless, 
plans to prosper you, a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me, you will find me when you seek me with your whole heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Book of Acts. Spirit is poured out on these people miraculously, powerfully, and Peter begins to preach and makes the announcement after the Spirit is poured out, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in these last days, God declares that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Both books open to point out God is in control. God saw this, God planned this, God spoke about it, God revealed it in advance, and now it is happening. Each begins with a loud statement about what God has said and what God said he would do, and now it's happening. Friends, the Lord knows. The Lord has a plan. The Lord knows what he's doing. He's laid out a good plan. He's revealed some of that plan, and now we see it unveiling, being fulfilled. God is the one who is able to bring it about. This is meant to inspire us. This is meant to raise our view of God. Oh, God says things hundreds of years in advance. This is what's going to happen. This is what I'm going to do. And then all of a sudden we find ourselves in a situation. There is God actually doing what he said he was going to do. It's meant to inspire and raise our view of how great this God is. And what a glorious thing when we find ourselves in the midst of a promise being fulfilled. When we see God at work and there we are in it, involved in it. God said something with us in mind and here we are. God is pouring out his spirit and we're receiving it, experiencing it. Both books are filled with divine activity, although in a slightly different way. Well, the book of Acts is filled with signs and wonders, these supernatural events, just God working supernaturally. In Ezra and Nehemiah, it's filled as well with divine work, but a divine work of a somewhat different sort. In Ezra and Nehemiah, we see God's hand at work in and through human agency over and over again. The verses we read, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. You see the divine perspective is pointing out, now Cyrus made this decree, but what God wants you and I to know, we want to read this account and have the divine narrative inform us, it was the spirit of the Lord that prompted that proclamation from the king of Persia. In Ezra 1 verse 5, it says, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord. Again, the people came, a group of people left Babylon, came out of exile and returned. Who and why? Oh, the ones whose the spirit, whom the spirit of God stirred their hearts to go. 
So we see over and over again in these two books this divine activity behind the scene, but the activity is not the supernatural signs and wonders like we read in the book of Acts. Nevertheless, supernatural just the same. But we see how God's sovereign hand, his supernatural sovereign hand works through human agency. We get to be involved. Both books are the last narrative storyline books of each testament. If you opened your Bible to Second Chronicles, you were a page before Ezra and Nehemiah. It's hardly the end of the Old Testament in the pages of your book. But as far as the storyline goes, those two books are the end of the narrative. There's no more storyline after Ezra and Nehemiah. From there, it's Psalms, it's prophets, it's all fill in, and all those prophets were actually functioning in and around this time or prior to this time. This is the end of the narrative. And one thing we'll notice is as we study these books, it's, they're open-ended books. They don't resolve well. They don't finish well. There's, there's not a good conclusion there. Well, it's good in the sense it's designed to be open-ended. It's designed to invite us in to participate. The book of Acts does the same thing. You finish Acts 28 and says there was Paul in Rome and he was able to preach the word of God and the kingdom of God freely and without hindrance. End of story. Off it goes. Of course, many of you may have heard of a, an association of churches called Acts 29. The whole theme of calling it Acts 29 is like we are picking up the story. Where the book of Acts left off, we're a continuation of this. So we're moving on from this in the same with Ezra and Nehemiah. God is reestablishing his people. And he is preparing those people for the coming of the Messiah. And he leaves the story open-ended to invite any and all to come. You want to be a part of this. You want to get in on this. You get so enthralled and excited about what God is doing, and then it leaves it open-ended with the sense of invitation. Don't you, too, want to be a part of what God's doing? Don't you, too, want to be a part of God's building project? It's exciting. It's adventurous. It's dangerous. It's fun. It's glorious. It's an invitation. Second point. See, realize that we're dealing with the same problem. The problem that I read about and the problem that we have are one and the same. Now, the exile, which we read about, the exile, God saying, can't work with this anymore. I need to send you off into Babylon. This is the only way to get you ready for the true remedy. They go into exile, and it is a dynamic display of forsaking God. The root problem is the sin in their hearts, the resistance to God, the rebellion against God, the antagonism of their hearts toward God until there was no remedy. Now that phrase sounds like to us there was no solution to the problem. They were just simply doomed. It's not really what the text is trying to communicate. 
the, the word remedy there could be, could be translated uh, health, strength. And, and what God is saying is just, it's just all weakness. It, it, is, it is a way of saying there's, just, there's nothing useful there. There's nothing good there. there there's, there's no health left in these people, in their hearts. They've, they've drifted so and, be, and corrupted themselves so much. There's no health left. Now, you, you can't take that phrase so literally that there is no remedy because the whole Bible is about God's remedy. <laughs> there is obviously a remedy. That's our gospel message. There's a remedy. But God is pointing out, look, look at what happens when you run from God. Look at what becomes of you when, you when you resist, when you won't listen, when you won't yield your heart, when you stiffen your neck and harden your heart. This is what becomes of the people. No remedy. Another way of saying it is you can't save yourself. There's no health there in existence for you to solve the issue yourself. I hereby pronounce you an absolutely dependent people on my remedy, says God speaking. They displayed what it means to be alienated from God. Captured, overtaken, deported, city burned, temple sacked, torn down. Living in a foreign place, not their home, not their customs, not their language, not their people. It is intended to create a picture where you say everything is wrong with this picture. Nothing is going right for these people. You're supposed to feel it. You're supposed to recognize it. Like the, You could not imagine a scenario where life for a group of people could be worse, could be more wrong. And God is laying it out to present a picture of what it means when man leaves God. When man resists God. When man hardens his heart, stiffens his neck. All these things were wrong, but worst of all, they were no semblance of the people of God, the very thing that God had called them to be. They had forfeited their identity, and with that, their joy. The object of their worship, they substituted. Their security was gone. Their hope was gone. Their prosperity was gone. Their protection was gone. Their Father and their Lord was not a part of their lives anymore. And God wants you and I to read this story, read this account, and be appalled at their situation. And to be stirred with a, with a godly fear of the Lord in our hearts to say, Ah, if that's where it goes, when I resist God, when I ignore his word, when I go my own way, that's the end result. Get the picture in your mind. And let it cause you to tremble. This is what it's meant to be without Christ. And this is how the New Testament talks about you and me prior to knowing Christ. 
anyone who is outside of Christ, lost in our weakness, no health, no remedy, dead in our sins, apart from God, alienated from the people of God. Ephesians 2 talks about this, dead in trespasses and sins that we once walked in. Remember that you were at some time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. I always find it a little strange, and I wonder how you hear and receive this when me or someone stands up here trying to convince you just how bad you were. What is your status prior to knowing Christ? How bad is it? And you know, I, I get it. I get it. You know, okay, I cheated on a couple tests. I put my little brother in the dryer. I did some bad things, you know, okay. But, you know, for the most part, not so bad. And yet we've got these terms coming from the New Testament that are extreme. It's like, how... How do we reconcile that? And of course, when you and I think about, are you a good person, are you a bad person? We're thinking about the things we did, how we compare ourselves with others, and we can always find somebody worse than you to make you feel a little bit better. And it's like, it all feels kind of tepid and moderate and, you know, middle of the road. And maybe a few of you, you know, you did some jail time, you did some really bad things. And so you, it's a little bit easier for you to kind of recognize what the Bible is, is talking about. But we need to think in terms of Rejecting God, ignoring God, not listening to God, not heeding God, not acknowledging God. And it begins to take on some focus. And the reality is, friends, that when you truly come to Christ and there's a, a work of the Spirit regenerating your heart, there's this wonderful, somewhat strange acknowledgement of where we stand with God apart from Christ. It is convicting. It is sorrowful. There's like almost like we get a veil gets lifted and we get a glimpse of this. Oh my God. I hated God. I didn't think I hated God. I was resisting. I didn't think I, I Oh, and the reality, the, the curtain is lifted and we begin to see some reality about the state of our soul. Now, why, why am I telling you this? Friends, this, that reality, when, when, and many of you can relate to this, you, you've, been, you've been moved on by the Spirit of God and you've had a glimpse of your own sinfulness and you get it. That reality and that work of the Spirit shapes the Christian from that moment forward. Think about what kind of person that forms. Unusually grateful. Constantly amazed. I like to use the phrase, I can't believe God saved me. But of course I believe it because faith is required to believe it. But you understand what I'm saying. It's so Amazing, because I got a glimpse of who I was apart from Christ. And it stunned me. And it doesn't matter if you're five years old in children's ministry and the, the 
children's ministry teacher says we're all sinners and we need God's grace and it just dawns on you. Really? Yes, I see it. It changes you. It molds you. It changes your worship. It changes your demeanor. It changes your attitude towards others. It makes you more gracious. It makes you more grateful. You're supposed to see that about yourself. And with that, when you see the grace of God in Christ, those things combined together make you a Christian, a gospel-centered person that is changed in your heart because your predicament was that bad. And the grace of God into your life is that good. And we live out of that. We live with that awareness. We never forget it. That's why I keep telling you how bad you are. It's for your own good. It's to make you happier. Oh, okay, where are we? Third point, connect Israel and the church. Make the Old Testament, New Testament connection. The people of God in the Old Testament are a precursor and very much the people of God. We could even use the phrase that is the church in the Old Testament. There are, there's much connection between what God is doing in building the people of God in the nation of Israel and the church in the New Testament. Ezra and Nehemiah is about the nation of Israel, the people of Israel that God rescued, saved. There's so much attention on the city, the city walls, the temple, but really it is a story about restoring the people of God. Yes, it's about rebuilding walls. Yes, it's about rebuilding the temple. There's much going on, but it is the building up and the restoring of the people of God. That's ultimately what this is all about. The, the city, the temple, these were contexts, these were representations to give expression of what was in the hearts of the people. Notice what happened before. It didn't seem to, how can I say this, bother God to let the temple get burned and the walls crumble. I say that to, to make the point. It's like it wasn't about the building. It wasn't about the city per se. It was about the people. And if the people of God living in the city of God are not going to be the people of God, then what do we need this city for? That's secondary. Those things are representative. Those things are expressions of what is going on, of work of the Spirit of God in the hearts and the lives of his people. He wants a people worshiping, living, sharing, caring for one another as the people of God, worshiping the God who made them, worshiping the God who delivered them. When we get into the books, we're going to get some list of people and names. There's going to be a roster of who gets to come. To Jerusalem, there's going to be names that get on the list and names that do not get on the list. In order to be identified with the people of God, they needed to prove their lineage, their heritage. They needed birth certificates. 
It's like if I go down to get a driver's license, I have to show some proof of, of who I am. I, I need some kind of certification. I need a birth certificate to prove who I am and my name. And they went through the same thing. Who can be a part of God's people? Well, you have to prove your lineage, your heritage, who you were born to. They also needed to show their identity by their loyalty to the Lord. Their willingness to worship the Lord and not another. That was the problem. I don't know if you recall, but these people had no problem worshiping God. They just worshiped God as well as every other God at the same time. That was the problem. They had a temple. They were functioning in the temple. They were also functioning in every other temple and whatever they felt like. So it was all together. So it's not that, in a sense, in that sense, they were neglecting God. But they were surely neglecting God. Because you shall worship the Lord your God and him only. And they had to prove their identity by their loyalty, their worship of the Lord and not another. Their willingness to walk in the ways of the Lord. This, as well as their lineage, were things that marked them as the people of God. They were covenant people. The New Testament is about the church, the people of God. When Jesus was interacting with Peter, with Peter and he said, who, who do you say that I am? And Peter made this glorious declaration, you're the Christ. That's when Jesus said, yes, and upon this rock I will build my church. I will build my church people, my gathered people, my assembled people. So a church, when we see the word church in the New Testament, it's a word used to describe the, the gathering, the convening, the, the, the covenant people gathering together. Both the Greek and the Hebrew words translated gathering or assembly, but it's, it's interesting, if you do a study of that word in the New Testament, um, it's, it's a little shy. It's a little not as clear as maybe we would like it, but here's where actually the Old Testament helps us. And what I believe Jesus was referring to when he uses the word, the, the Old Testament helps us because in the Old Testament where that word was really used and emphasized was when there was this assembly of God's people just after being delivered out of Egypt. And this is where it gives us this full rich expression of the assembly of God's people that Jesus had in mind here. Exodus chapter 19. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord 
commanded him. Again, in the book of Deuteronomy, another recounting here, only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, unless they depart from your heart all the days of your life, make them known to your children and your children's children how on the day that you stood before the Lord, your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, gather the people to me that I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth and that they may teach their children so. That was the assembly, the gathering of God's people, the covenant people. Come and gather. Oh, would it be beautiful for those verses to inform every Sunday gathering for us. Come, people of God, covenant people of God, gather together to hear the word of the Lord being spoken to you. We are talking about something more than just a group of people sitting in a room together. It's the assembly, the gathering of God's people, the ones Jesus died to save, the ones for whom he shed his own blood, the blood of a new covenant in order that you and I could be made right with God and adopted into his household. There's a framework for coming to church on Sunday afternoon. Where are we going? We're going to the assembly, the gathering of the redeemed, the people that Jesus died for, gave himself for, and adopted into his family. That's where we're going at 3 o'clock on Sunday afternoon. And we're going to hear the word of the Lord as we gather with his covenant people. Jay Packer writes, Christ's church was to be and now is nothing more nor less than the Old Testament covenant community itself in a new and fulfilled form that God had planned for it from the start. It is Israel internationalized and globally extended in, through, and under the unifying dominion of Jesus, the divine Savior, who is King. We'll get the most out of studying Ezra and, Ezra and Nehemiah as we continue to make that connection between the people of God and Israel and the church. Last point, see God's building project. What is God doing? And what is common with what he did then and what he's doing today in the church? Ezra and Nehemiah had actual building projects. They were rebuilding a temple, rebuilding a city, restoring walls. People were relocating, packing up, moving trucks, changing schools. Where's the Home Depot? Getting settled in. It was all a lot of commotion. A lot of things were changing. They were physically building things that had either been burned to the ground or torn down or demolished. They were digging. They were carrying stones. They were mixing mortar. They were cutting boards. They were pounding nails. They were building physically building but they were also being built as the people of God as God was regathering them they had to rethink worship they had to get exposed to the Bible again maybe for many of them for the first time 
They had to get reintroduced to the Bible, to God's word. They had to listen to it for long periods of time. They needed to stay. It was like going back to school. You imagine it was 70 years. Most of you are less than 70 years old. So as of today, you would have been born in Babylon, went to Babylonian schools, Babylonian neighborhoods, shopped in Babylonian stores, and now all of a sudden we say, ah, the people of God are moving and we're going back to Jerusalem. What is this all about? Here's a Bible. This will tell you everything you need to know about who we are as a people. They had to rethink. They had to take an honest look at their very lives, how they lived their lives in light of what God was speaking in and through his word. They just grew up in a culture like many of us have just grown up in a culture. You just do what you do. You do what you think is acceptable. You did what was right in your own eyes. And now all of a sudden the word of God is being proclaimed and read and studied and saying, oh, now this is what God says about how we live how we grow, how we serve. They needed to go through a complete overhaul of what it meant to be the people of God. There's many things that are unique to the Old Testament time, the sacrificial system, the physical temple. There were many things that were done away with in Christ, and many things did change. Again, J.I. Packer writes this. He says, the difference here between now and then was partly one of knowledge and partly one of experience. The faithful in the Old Testament times did not know as much about the Christ to whom they looked forward as the New Testament Christians do now that Christ has come. Nor did Old Testament saints experience so much of God's transforming moral power in their lives as Christians have known since the Pentecostal outpouring of the Spirit But listen to this. This is what what I really wanted to emphasize. This is what is common with them and with us. And, And knowing this will help you and I get the most out of this. But faith, repentance, temptation, love, doubt, unbelief, praise, prayer, pride, thanksgiving, backsliding, patience, purity of heart, self-control, zeal for God. In short, all virtues belonging to godliness and all vices comprised in irreligion were essentially the same in the Old Testament times as they are in the New. And the Old Testament contains profound teaching about them. There's so much we can learn from these Old Testament accounts. They teach us so much. Yes, there are times we say, oh, that was then and this is now. We don't do that anymore. That's not included anymore. But the scriptures explicitly explain to us what things are no more. But these character issues and so many things about how we function together as the people of God remain the same. Into the New Testament, the building materials have changed. No more bricks, no more mortar. Now it's people. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2. 
We're the bricks. We're the stones. We're the parts. We're the new temple built our lives, built together. This is the building project. And we can learn from the building project coming out of the exile in Ezra and Nehemiah. We'll have much to gain from it. Worship team, you can come on up. Conclusion. To see what God has done in Ezra and Nehemiah. To see how God could take a people that were so bad. Call them back and restore them. Rebuild them. Reform them. Revive them should store up faith in our hearts for what God can do. Now this revival that we'll read about is not filled with a bunch of spontaneous, supernatural expressions of God's power, but instead, these things took place by God working powerfully and supernaturally in the hearts and lives of people. I'm all for miracles, supernatural signs and wonders. Lord, bring them on. But what we don't want to miss and what we want to embrace and what we want to trust God for is that the Spirit of God will work in your heart, in my heart, that he will speak, that he will stir up, that he will prompt, and that will all be a part of his building project as he's drawing us into what he's doing building this church could we pray together as we just started launching this series for a work of the spirit in us to rebuild to restore to reform to revive And in the details that each one of us would individually and corporately together, by God's grace, as we work our way through this study, give ourselves in a fresh and renewed way to worship, to God's word, to personal holiness, to one another, ultimately giving ourselves to what God is building, a house for his glory made up of the covenant people of God. Church building, God's project for the future. Would you pray with me? Father, we humbly ask we're going to read a, an account of something you did in history. We're going to study it for weeks and look at the details of it. And it's, it's amazing. Your grace at work in people that have no remedy within themselves. And you built something glorious. And the truth is, the success of what you did is present in this room right now. For that gospel grace has been working throughout generations 
And the message has found us. You have found us. And you've saved us. Father, we're joining our hearts to come before you and say, God, would you work in us too? Whatever large portion of our hearts and lives or small crevice little corners of our lives that are resistant to you, hiding from you, resisting, walking away from you, ignoring you, saving little things to be our own, not surrendered to you, avoiding your words, or what, whatever is in our hearts, we just together say, God, work by your spirit. Stir up our hearts to come to you in a fresh way and say, Lord, without you, there's no remedy. But with you, we begin to see this glorious building that you're putting together, this work of your glory that is for our good and for our joy. And Lord, give us a heart to give ourselves to it, to lean in wholeheartedly, to pick up a shovel and a pickaxe and mix some mortar and lay the bricks and get involved in the project that you're building, Lord. we can experience the joy, the wonder, the security, the hope of being the people of God. Pray for the months ahead in this study. Use each Sunday, each message, each verse, each chapter to accomplish this in our hearts and in our lives for your glory. Amen. Amen. Stand.